I'm turning this evening to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and tonight we'll be looking at verses 18 through 29. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, and we'll be looking this evening at the church in Thyatira, the church in Thyatira. If you look with me there at verse 18, as many of the introductions to each one of these letters, uh, this one begins in a very similar fashion. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thyatira was a city with a very large number of what are referred to as trading guilds. Thyatira was known for its craftsmen, people who worked in various crafts, who worked in uh, linens, who worked in uh, wood, who worked in metals. A trading guild, many of you may or may not know what that is, but these were very prevalent, uh, is an association of persons or people who have a similar skill set, a similar trade, if you will. Uh, they were formed to protect the interests of that particular trade and to also maintain particular standards. Now, Thyatira is very similar to what we saw in Pergamos in that both places there was this very strong pressure of the residents there, and especially to the church, that in order to, quote-unquote, get ahead in the world, uh, you would have to compromise what you believed. You would have to compromise and give in to the political climate, to give in to the economical climate, and to also give in to literally what was the social pressures of the day. Thyatira was known as a trading city. Uh, trade is still very uh, common in our world today, but trading in those hours and those days was of the utmost importance. 
uh, trading ports were known to be uh, some of the most wicked places where the ships would come in, things would, goods would be unloaded, and those particular craftsmen uh, would earn their living uh, from uh, those trades that went on. Those trade guilds, made up again, as I mentioned to you, made up by people who worked with wool, with linen, uh, people who made garments, uh, who dyed, uh, people who worked with uh, potter, pottery, things like that. Each one of those trade guilds, this is where this really begins to get interesting, each one of those trade guilds, so kind of keep this in your mind if you would, each one had a guardian god or a guardian deity, a god that looked over each individual guild. In other words, if you were of the guild who worked with linen, there was a deity who was overseeing that particular guild. Uh, it was a guardian god is what they were referred to. Uh, in order to uh, be accepted into their guild and to remain in that guild, it required you uh, to worship its God. Uh, one of the fascinating things when we study the Word is to think about when we see the Scriptures uh, and then to understand a little bit about the history as to what was going on. So the membership in these guilds was not just based upon whether or not you had the skill or not, but whether or not you had the skill and also worship that God. In order to be a part of this guild, you had to attend their festivals and their feasts. And part of that was to eat the food that was offered up to the guardian deity. And you would receive on your table as you worshipped and ate that food unto the God, the guild, and they believed the God of that particular guild would give you a gift. When the feast came to an end, this was very common, the ending of these feasts were severely immoral. Uh, the, the feast turned into a time of immorality. And so you can see what's happening here. In order to be a part of the guild, you had to worship the guardian deity, you had to eat the food that was sacrificed unto idols, and you had to participate in the sexual immorality in those particular guilds. Now we understand that as we read the letter to the church in Pergamos, uh, Christ himself addressed the lack of church discipline. In other words, he was mentioning to the church there that they were not disciplining that which they knew of. But here in the letter to the church at Thyatira, Christ is, Christ is addressing the actual sin. He is addressing the reality of the immorality. And even in verse 20, it says about committing fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Christ puts his finger directly upon the sin that this church was allowing itself to be found in. The problem here is that they are also commended, which we'll see, for being a very loving church. You'll recall back in the very first letter, the church at Ephesus, which was declared to have left its first love, this is not the case with Thyatira. As a matter of fact, Christ makes mention of the reality that he's aware of their works and their charity. Again, this is a church that is marked by its love. The problem isn't that they were loving. The problem is, is that they had become tolerant of immoral behavior and had began 
taking part of eating things sacrificed to these guardian gods. Now this is a difficult situation. It's a difficult situation for those who were craftsmen, those who were in these guilds, because to not participate in the worship of that guardian deity, to not eat of the food that was sacrificed to idols, and furthermore, to not be involved in the immorality that was at the conclusion of the feast would cost you your membership in that trading guild. In other words, to be a part of this guild and in order to be recognized for your trade and for your skill and to earn your living, you had to participate in this guild. If you were not part of this guild, it pretty much was a guarantee you could not make a living. So as we saw, though, in our scripture in Acts Acts 16, in the first 15 verses, we were introduced to a woman by the name of Lydia. And Lydia was indeed one of those craftsmen. Lydia was a seller of purple linens. Now I'll have to tell you, this this has been a fascinating study this week because I had never, ever, ever made the connection between Lydia and these trade guilds. I had never realized that when you put the pieces together, you realize that she was a seller of purple linens. And yet we saw in Acts chapter number 16, the Bible says about Lydia, and the commentary is, whose heart the Lord opened. The Lord redeemed her by His sovereign electing grace. This is a beautiful picture. Now we begin to fill in the blanks as to Lydia's conversion is already one of my favorite stories in all the Bible because it is so very simple but so direct that proves to us that it is only by the elect sovereign grace of God that any of us are saved. So we can see kind of the background of what was happening there in Thyatira. Now, in our letter tonight, very similar to what we have been doing each and every week, we see that the form of this letter is very much the same. We consider the inscription, the contents of the letter, the commendation, the condemnation, and the conclusion. Each one of these letters has really those five parts. Inscription, contents, commendation, condemnation, and conclusion. And the first heading I want us to look at tonight covers verses 18 and 19 and simply is this. Christ praises whatever is worthy of commendation. Christ praises whatever is worthy of commendation. Notice again who the letter was directed to. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these Things. So this letter is written to the church at Thyatira, which again, we've already given you the background of the trading guilds, uh, guilds rather, and this was a city in Asia. And of course, we know again, as we've already talked about Lydia, a seller of purple, uh, who was uh, doing the business of her vocation. She hears Paul preach, and God opens her heart. She attends to those things that were spoken, and she believes She was baptized, and then our scripture reading goes on to say that she constrained Paul to stay in her home. Now, whether or not Lydia and her conversion was the very means in which the gospel was brought unto Thyatira, we're not sure. But what a glorious story this would be, is if Lydia and her conversion was the very start of the gospel ministry at Thyatira. 
But we do know that, of course, because the letter is written to the church of Thyatira, we are looking at a church that was founded through the preaching of the gospel. Again, as we've looked at each letter, who was it sent by? It was sent by the Son of God. And notice the description of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ here. He's described as having eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Now, this is a general title, the Son of God, but it refers to Christ eternal and that he is the only begotten Son of God. Now, this is an important term because the Son of God gives us insight as to the reality that this means that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has the same nature with the Father. There is not a lessening of nature, but there is a distinct manner of subsistence, or there is a difference in the two. That's why we believe in the three persons of the Trinity. But he is the same in nature. So this Son of God is a very important expression. And again, as it has been, there is this picture or a description of what he appeared. Again, these were not to show us what he actually looked like, but to give us a a reference point as to characteristics of who he is. His eyes are like a flame of fire. What do eyes like a flame of fire tell us? This shows us that his eyes or what he sees, he sees with a perfect unveiled knowledge. When Christ looks at his people, when Christ looks at his church, he sees with a perfect knowledge. He sees through all of the things that you and I cannot see through. I can look at you each one tonight and I cannot look at you with perfect knowledge. My vision of you is veiled by my own sin. My vision of you is veiled by my own presuppositions. To have eyes like a flame of fire means that it is looked upon with sinless, perfect eyes. Fire in the scripture is purifying. He looks with pure eyes. What is he looking at? Well, we'll see later in our text that he searches the hearts and he tries the reins of the children of men, verse 23 tells us. He knows everything that we do. They are eyes that are perfect. His feet are like fine brass. Now, brass throughout Scripture many times refers to purity and holiness. But it also refers to perfect judgment and perfect wisdom. Not only do his eyes look with perfect knowledge, but his feet like fine brass, which means his judgment is pure and perfect and holy, and he acts in perfection, which means every act that he commits, everything that he does is done with perfection and is done with his providence in mind. So the Lord says, his feet are like fine brass. Verse 19, I know thy works. Now here's the commendation of the epistle. He commends the church. He commends its ministry. He commends the reality that this church and its people, he's acquainted with them. It is an amazing thing to me that Christ is acquainted with us. Christ knows and sees each one of us with perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, 
perfect judgment. That may not strike you, but it strikes me. It strikes me that Christ is even the least bit concerned about this church. But yet he looks and he sees and he sees us with perfect knowledge, with perfect vision. He is not a stranger in his churches. Now this church is commended. They are commended for their behavior. They're commended for the way they act. He mentions specifically their works and their charity, their service, their faith, their patience, their works, and the last to be more than the first. Notice Christ makes mention of their charity. Charity is a word that is similar to the word love, although charity is a bit stronger of a word. I know we often say words are interchangeable, that they're the same, but charity has a stronger meaning to it. He says, I know your charity. Charity is different than love in that charity comes with it a disposition to do good to all men. It comes with it not only a great care and compassion and concern for others, but it comes with a great desire to will and to do good. This church was no doubt doing good to other brethren. They were loving. They were a church like you and I should want to be. We should want to be a church that is loving. We should want to be a church that is disposed to do good especially the household of faith. He makes mention of their charity. He makes mention of their service, or what we often refer to as ministry. Now, this is a reference, I believe, primarily to the officers of the church who were laboring in word and doctrine. In other words, he says the service there, the ministry, those who are laboring in the word, I commend it. We also want that as a church. We want the officers of our church, pastors, elders, we want them laboring in the word and we want them laboring in doctrine. But he also mentions their faith. Faith is really grace in action. Faith is grace in action. So faith with, that is grace in action results in charity and in service. So if my faith is real, it is of grace, and it will result in works of charity and works of service. He also commends them for something I think all of us would want to be commended for, patience. Patience. This loving church who is charitable and is giving is also patient. Now, a church that is loving and a church that is disposed to do good should expect that there will come a time when their patience will be tested, when our patience will be tried. He's talking about their fruitfulness. Patience, of course, is a virtue. We've all heard that expression, right? And he says that patience and your works and the last to be more than the first. This is a reference to their growing fruitfulness. They were growing in grace. They were not a stagnant church. They were not a church that was just content to stay where it was, but their works were better than their first. This is an excellent commendation. This talks about character. Others such as Ephesus who had left their first love, others who had lost their zeal, 
This church, Thyatira, is growing in grace. Now listen, every day, our last works, we should want to be our best works. The very last works we did for the Lord, we should want those to be better than the previous works. Growing in grace results in greater fruitfulness. Our works are to increase, not decrease. Again, if we stopped in the letter, we would say this is a church every single one of us wants to be a part of. But as has been the case in most of our letters, in verse 20, we see that Christ now condemns. And the second heading is this, Christ reproves whatever is worthy of condemnation. There is a perfect, faithful reproof of that which is wrong. Now you'll notice that the wording is interesting here. He says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now we're going to get to this in just a moment, but we have to understand that there is not a literal person named Jezebel who is at the heart of this. And this is not a reference to the Jezebel we read about in 1 Kings 16. But rather what this is, is a reference to the spirit of a doctrine that's being allowed and is being tolerated. It's connected to the trading guilds offering food, sacrifice, or feeding food offered to idols, and fornication. That's part of the doctrine of what Jezebel was teaching. So this reproof is upon not just the church itself, but primarily seducers who were within the church. In other words, here's another example of where there were people in the church who were carrying a false doctrine and an improper doctrine, and the church was not responding to it. As we've mentioned many, many times, false doctrine cannot be tolerated for a single hour in a church. Some people would say that's very unloving. We should allow people to express themselves. False doctrine will destroy a church, and it will destroy a church quickly. Remember, this church was loving. This church was faithful. This church was growing in fruitfulness. But he says, I have something against you. You have the doctrine of Jezebel in your congregation. Now, we won't read for the sake of time tonight, but I encourage you to go back and read in 1 Kings especially about Jezebel. Jezebel's history was that she was a persecutor of the prophets of God. She wanted nothing more than to destroy God's prophets. She was a queen, if you will, of idolatry. She is a queen of false prophets. When I preached this on the, a, a series of the seven churches, many years ago here, I made mention of this fact, and I still hold true to this day, a Jezebel is not a very popular name that you would name a little girl. As a matter of fact, it'd probably be the worst possible name you could give a little girl. Because within it, even the world understands Jezebel has a negative connotation. 
But you read about her in 1 Kings 16 and other parts of 1 Kings, and you realize that the sin that she was guilty of is that she was attempting to draw the prophets and the servants of God into immorality and to offer sacrifices to idols. That's exactly why the Lord says that you've suffered or you've allowed that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. That's what Jesus is talking about here. These people, these seducers who had the spirit of Jezebel, they called themselves prophets. And so because they claimed to be prophets, they came into the church claiming to have superior knowledge and superior authority. In other words, their goal was this, to lessen and to negate the authority and the doctrine of the recognized officers of the church of Thyatira and replace them with these false prophets. Now, I've only had this happen maybe one time where someone came into a church congregation who I think was there for that very reason, was that they were there to attempt to supersede the doctrine of the church. They were not there to worship. They were there to attempt to undermine the authority of the church and proper doctrine. That's what seducers do. A seduction is something that is done in order to move you to do something that you ought not do. We can be seduced in morality, but we can also be seduced to improper doctrine. That's what was happening in the church in Thyatira. So they would call themselves prophets they would claim to be in greater authority than the current ministers at Thyatira. Now there's two things that really we're going to see that make their sin even worse. Because what they would do is that they would oppose the truth of God's doctrine. False prophets always oppose real truth. Please remember that. False prophets always oppose real truth. But they also will attack proper worship. One of the very reasons we as a church are very careful about our doctrine and our worship is because those two areas are the areas where false prophets are most likely to enter in. We might say the seducers would come in and immediately attack doctrine. No, the first thing they would possibly do is attack worship. And they would make worship something that it was never intended to be. They would turn worship into something that became more about the person rather than the God. So this was an aggravation of their sin. But I want you to see the beauty of this. In spite of how bad the doctrine of Jezebel is, notice verse 21. And I gave her space to repent. Christ gave these prophets space to repent. This is an unbelievable manifestation of the patience of our Lord. I gave her space. In our humanity, we say, why did he just not strike them dead? He gave them space to repent of what? Specifically of her fornication and she repented not. Similar to the actual Jezebel who did not repent of her sin, these individuals who were attempting to seduce the church at Thyatira also would not repent. 
I gave her space. One thing we do not fully understand about Christ is how long does Christ give space for repentance? You and I tend to work on a very tight time frame. We tend to say, it's been long enough. I've given you more than enough time to repent. I've given you more than enough time. How much space did Christ give for repentance? How much space does Christ give for the sinner today? How much time does He give? Christ is forbearing. He's long-suffering. What does repentance involve? It would have involved in a repentance of corrupt doctrine and a repentance of a wicked life. But what was the outcome? Jesus Himself says, and she repented not. For the individual that says Christ is not loving, Christ didn't give me any room, here's an example of where the Bible itself says, I gave them space to repent, and they would not repent. She remained unrepentant. Jezebel died, the actual Jezebel died in unrepentance, and there's no reason to believe that Jezebel went anywhere but to hell. There's no evidence that she ever repented of her sin. So what is a lack of repentance? A lack of repentance is to abuse the patience of Christ. To not repent is to abuse the patience of Christ. The longer you abuse the patience of Christ, the harder your heart becomes. When we see the hardness of people's hearts, and we see people who seem to be growing harder and harder, often it is the direct result of abusing Christ's patience. It is the individual that says, I'll repent tomorrow. It's the individual that says, I'll repent later. I don't want to give up my sin. I enjoy my sin. Yet, no matter how long they think it will be, they repented not. Repentance is necessary to prevent a sinner's eternal destruction. Make no mistake about it, a person does not go to heaven, does not escape hell, and will face the wrath and the judgment of God if there is no repentance. Repentance does require time. Now again, I've been looking and reading uh, a book by James Boyce called um, Systematic, System of Abstract Theology, a bit deep. And one of the great challenges has been about that God is not bound by time the way you and I are. So when we think about a space of time, we measure time in minutes. We measure time in hours, in days, in weeks, in months. Christ is not bound by time. So when we see this space we don't understand what the space of time that God is actually using. But we do know that here He gave space to these false prophets. And they did not repent. Repentance always expects fruits. Repentance always expects fruits. When we repent, Christ expects Fruits meet for repentance. When the space of that repentance is gone, when Christ 
withdraws that space, that sinner perishes, experiences spiritual death, and it will be cast off into eternal hell forever once that space of time closes. That is a very sobering thought. Now why should the church of Thyatira be held responsible for the wickedness of Jezebel? Because the church allowed it to happen. They allowed the church to suffer or suffered allowing people to seduce the the people of that church leading to their very suffering. As we looked at last week, of course, the church itself does not have civil power. It doesn't have the ability to imprison. It doesn't have the ability uh, to, uh, to execute. But what is very important for you and I to consider is the church does have the authority and the power to excommunicate, to remove from its midst anyone who fails to carry on or continue in proper doctrine. Excommunication is a biblical principle. What Jesus is saying that this church should have done is you should have excommunicated these seducers. You should have removed them from your congregation. So they are in a bit of condemnation. But notice Jesus goes on and talks about the punishment of those seducers. Verses 22 and 23, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. There is the punishment. I will cast her into a bed, a a bed of tribulation, a bed of flames. Those who do not repent, we might say, will make their bed with her. It's guilt by association. Remember back to the introduction and the trading guilt. All of this is connected. All of this has ties. To associate with, to not repent. He goes on, and these are sobering truths. I will kill her children. Now this is not talking about physical children. This is talking about those who were the disciples of this doctrine. Those who remain unrepentant and are disciples of this doctrine of Jezebel will also be cast off into eternal spiritual death, which is a reference to the second death. There is no hope for the unrepentant after the grave. There is no hope for the unrepentant after the grave. The unrepentant die in their sins, they perish in those sins, and they eternally will live with those sins, and they will experience what the Bible says is the second death. So what is the purpose of Christ in destroying these seducers? It is to send a message to the church. Look what he says. All the churches shall know that I am He, which searches the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto you, every one of you, according to your works. The purpose of Christ in this letter and telling this to the church is that all the churches should know that with His perfect vision and His perfect knowledge and His perfect wisdom, He says, I am the one that tries and searches the hearts. I am the one that searches the reins. And I will give to every one of you according to your works. 
He's not talking about salvation by works, but he's talking about whether or not you are repentant or you are unrepentant. I know your heart. I cannot stress enough how none of us truly know the heart or the reins of another individual, no matter what we think we know. But Christ does. Christ is giving us an example, and He is showing us by telling us, I tell you this because I want you to have this as a lesson to you. All the churches will know that it's I who searches the reins. God is known by the judgment He executes. You realize when the wrath of God and judgment is poured out, it is not poured out because God was bored and had nothing else to do. It is poured out as an instruction to those who will refuse Almighty God. God's purposes are carried out in His wrath. That's why people that say, I only want God's love, I don't need to know about God's wrath. You need to know more about God's wrath than you do God's love. God's wrath is serious business to fall into the hands of an angry God. To be a sinner in the hand of an angry God as Jonathan Edwards so pointedly preached that sermon. The wrath of God is meant to be feared and it's meant to be instructive. He's teaching the congregation at Thyatira, I want you to learn from this. I want you to see what I have done to these seducers. What does this tell us about Christ trying and searching the heart? Well, here's what we do know. It means that the knowledge that Christ has is a perfect, infallible knowledge. You realize to have perfect infallible knowledge means not only does Christ know your heart, He knows the principles of your heart. He knows the motive of your heart. He knows whether your heart is actually apathetic or your heart is indifferent. And He actually knows if your heart is truly desiring purity and holiness. It's infallible. But you also realize, and you're seeing this theme, His justice is also perfect. He has never falsely condemned one who did not deserve to be condemned. A court of law in our nation, I don't know what the statistics are, but there's a staggering number of people who get accused and convicted of a crime they actually didn't do. And we might say that's a travesty of justice. There are no travesties of justice with Christ. If He says it, then it is. If it's worthy of destruction, then it's worthy of destruction. If it's worthy of commendation, then it's worthy of commendation. If it's worthy of condemnation, then it's worthy of condemnation. But we also see that this gives another testimony how that Christ is equal in nature with the Father. He's omniscient. He told the churches that He knows their works. He told the church I want you to understand that I know your heart as well. It is so churches, including ours, will understand and confess that Christ tries and searches our reins and our hearts. He knows exactly what our heart really, truly is. 
John Gill said about this, he said, Christ is omniscient and does not judge according to the outward appearance of things, but knows the principles and ends of all actions, however covert they may be. So he is righteous in judging and punishing, which will be according as men's works are. And not one shall escape his righteous judgment, nor the due desert of their sins, though the punishment of some may be greater than that of others. He's teaching the church, I know your heart. I know your works. I commend you where you need to be commended, but I condemn that which is wrong. And then the third heading is begin in verse 24. He says, but, I, but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine. So he, 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 he draws the line and he says, okay, now for those who do not hold this doctrine, here's what I say unto you. And our third heading is this, Christ will impose no more burdens on those who remain faithful to his doctrine. He encourages those who are keeping themselves undefiled those who have not given in to the trading guilds, those who have not given in to the, the immoral feasts, those who have not been eating the food that's been offered to idols, those that have remained spotless. When those seducers and the doctrine the day bring, he will not impose any more burdens on those who hold proper doctrine. Notice how he describes this, as many as have not this doctrine in which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Christ calls the doctrines that are not the doctrines of his, the depths of Satan. I mentioned a little bit about this on Sunday, about the demonic warfare that is going on. I mentioned to you on Sunday that every time we talk about demonic warfare, it always rears its ugly head. It reared its ugly head on Sunday. I'll tell you firsthand knowledge, it reared its ugly head. Warfare is always there. And he says that these doctrines, that these of the doctrine of Jezebel have brought in, it is satanic, it is a satanic device, and it is sin. It's a dangerous thing, of course, to despise God. But it is even a more dangerous thing to replace God with the depths of Satan. That's why I mentioned to you on Sunday, allowing your children and yourself to dabble in the occult, to dabble in the darkness of satanic things, you are playing with fire. He calls it the depths of Satan. But he says to those who remain faithful, but that which ye have already, I love this, hold fast till I come. To hold fast until I come, we are waiting for the judgment that's coming on those who hold the doctrine of this Jezebel. I will put no other burden upon you. Hold fast the doctrine which you already hold. I will not overburden you, he says. I will not require more of you than what I've already required of you. Hold fast until I come. Desire nothing more than me. Christ has the intent here of putting an end to all the temptations that his people are facing. And one of the things that you and I do not realize is how prevalent 
and how vicious and how attacking temptations to sin in this world are. We think we have a handle on it, and we don't. As bad as you think it is, it's worse. One day, all temptation will cease. You will not be capable of a wicked thought. You will not be capable of a wicked deed. You will be without sin. He says, hold fast till I come. Remember, I said the book of Revelation is comforting to those who are truly in Christ because he says, I want you to hold fast to the doctrine you already know until I come. And I'll assure you, friends, he is coming again. Christ will put an end to all these temptations. He will put, it, he will put an end to all of the struggles that we've been dealing with. The doctrine of faith which you've already received, the sovereign grace of God, he says, I will put no more yoke upon you. Matthew 11, verses 28 through, 28 through 30, teach us that the yoke of Christ is easy and his burden is light. What a joy it is to know he will not put any more burdens upon his people. He says, I simply just want you to hold fast to the doctrine you already have. This is just as true for us as it was the church in Thyatira. Fourth heading, verse 26. Christ promises the church that those who remain faithful will not be broken to pieces. Again, he's very strong in his wording here. Verse 26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. There's a promise of a reward to the victorious believer. Power and dominion, power over the nations, Christ as ruler, Christ as king, when believers shall be with Him for all of eternity, we will join with Him and what a rejoicing time that will be. And He promises to give them the morning star. Even as the wicked are broken with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken. The illustration is this. If you take a metal rod, a, a, a rod of iron, and you put it to a piece of pottery, the end result is always going to be the same. That pottery is going to be crushed. That pottery is going to be destroyed. The pottery never will bend the iron. And Christ says, when judgment comes, I will crush to pieces all of that false doctrine, all of the enemies of the cross, all of the enemies of the gospel, and will rule in perfection. In the final two verses, the final heading, Christ promises Himself. This is the great promise of all believers. He promises Himself as the royal king. I will give Him the morning star. Christ is the morning star. Our greatest possession is Christ Himself. Our possession of Him is more precious than any item we own in this world. Christ, the morning star, He brings light with Him. He gives us the light of His grace, the grace of His glory, 
And He will give His people that perfect light. Just like He's perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom, perfect in judgment, perfect in justice, He is also perfect light. The epistle ends in a similar fashion with the usual call to attention. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. I trust tonight that we are hearing what the Spirit not just said to the church at Thyatira, but what He's saying to us. In each one of the previous letters, this demand for attention or this call of attention comes before a concluding promise. But in this case, it is the very end of this letter. What follows now is yet another letter. Another letter that is written to the church in Sardis, which we'll look at next week. But we are to attend to what we've heard tonight. Attend, he who has an ear, let them hear. Christ assures his people that his kingdom is coming and the glory which is coming is commanding our attention. Commanding us to consider and to think about that which will be. Those who are truly in Christ tonight want to be associated with Christ. There is no shame in being a follower of Christ. There is no shame in being associated with Him. But he says, put aside all of that immorality. Put aside all of that wicked seduction that those prophets are bringing. Imagine the cost it was to those believers in Thyatira when they said, we will not compromise. We will not bow down to your gods. We will not eat that food offered to those idols, and we will not participate in your immoral feasts. Folks, I don't know what will happen in our country. I don't know if we'll ever see the day where you'll have to renounce your faith to earn a living. I'm speculating. But what would we do if our very livelihood depended upon it? Would we deny our Lord in order to gain a living? Would we allow false doctrine in order to keep our living? Many challenges to this tonight, but we are thankful to know that if you're in Christ tonight, you possess the greatest of all possessions. You possess Christ Himself. What a beautiful picture that is. Let's conclude tonight by singing 